Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Season's greetings and welcome once again to the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. Hi, I'm JB Motor. And we're here to celebrate the greatest songs in modern music history. We're going to tell you what makes them great, why we think they're awesome, and why you should too. JP, how you doing today, man? Man, I am doing fantastic. So when you speak with musicians around the world, like studio musicians, 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 they all know this guy yeah. that we're talking with today. He is uh, going to be focused on the mixer. Yes. That's what we're going to talk about. He is a famous engineer and yep. mixer. Um, this guy, uh, as, as a, a little segue to, we are in the middle of our behind-the-scenes uh, series between seasons. Um, so this is, we're touching on different parts of the music industry. Um, we're not doing a full-blown episode on a specific song, but this guy has his hands in so many amazing songs yes. and projects. It would be tough to pick one anyway. That's right. I mean, he's done stuff with Steely Dan, Pointer Sisters, Bet Midler, Whitney, Thelma Houston. Yeah, I all mean, the Houston. Pick, uh, pick it. Anybody named Houston. Yeah. Houston, we have a problem. Exactly. Uh, you know, Ringo, all the Beatles. Yeah. He's done stuff with all of the Beatles. Yeah. So this, seriously, this is a, when we, when we talk about, you know, this between seasons here, we're doing kind of a tour of the music industry. And a lot of it is behind the scenes. People who don't always get the, the shine of the credit that performers do. Um, and so this person is one of the like legendary behind the scenes guys or behind the board, I guess we should there probably we say. That's he has a new book, by the way, called Chairman of the Board. You should check it out. His name is Bill Schnee. That is S-C-H-N-E-E, Bill Schnee. He's an internationally resound producer, engineer, and mix master. He has, get this, over 125 golden platinum records. Goodness gracious. And 50 top 20 singles, uh, and is known as an engineer's engineer. Bill has worked on dozens of Grammy-nominated and winning albums, and has been personally nominated 11 times for Best Engineered Album category, winning twice for Steely Dan's Asia and Gaucho. He also has won an Emmy Award for Best Sound Mixing for a Variety Special, and even a Dove Award. In his 50-plus year career, Bill has found success in every musical genre, from pop to rock to R&B to gospel and country. You just listed off a ton of his credits. It would be impossible to just pick one song to represent the career span of Bill Schnee. So here's what we're going to do. Okay. We've got a whole list of things that he has worked on. It's like the wheel of Schnee. Okay. <laughs> and we're going to spin, spin the wheel of Schnee and wherever it lands, we're just going to hit play I like and it. see what happens. So let's see. This is something that Bill Schnee has either engineered, produced, <laughs> mixed, or, or worked on. Okay. okay let's hit it. Oh, yes, okay. Leo Salyer. All right. Oh, good stuff. This is You Make Me Feel Like Dancing. You've got a cute way of talking. <laughs> You've got the better of me. Could we have come up with a more random song oh, for man, this? Oh, man, I love it. Just We should just start doing this on every episode. <laughs> the Wheel of Schnee <laughs> weekly segment. Lonely, 
gets funky in a heartbeat. Like it takes a turn into funky, and then it's like and then it back, back into the yeah. <laughs> Makes me want to jump up in the air wearing some suspenders. You know. That's, <laughs> <laughs> Where's the, my white pants? <laughs> Kenny G's borrowed them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, that's the album cover is Leo Sayer jumping in the air and wearing suspenders and white pants. Uh, okay. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to let Bill tell the rest of his story, okay? These uh, between-season in, uh, episodes are interview-focused, and we just want to let these people have some shine and and uh, kind of tell their stories the best way that they can and the best way that we can present them to you guys so that you can have a deeper appreciation for the music that you already love, knowing a few more of the people who have helped to make it and not just performers who have performed it. So our behind-the-board guy, our mixer, is Bill Shanae, and we're going to talk to him right now. This is the Great Song Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, as promised, we are here with 11-time Grammy nominee for Best Engineered Album, Bill Schnee. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. This is going to be a real treat. Oh, good. Well, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, this this man, as we've as we've told you uh, previously in the episode, uh, has got 135 platinum and gold records <laughs> in his credit. Great. So uh, he's he's recorded and mixed over 50 top 20 singles. That's awesome. I mean, Bill is is kind of in that upper echelon of uh, mix engineers and studio engineers and and producers. Um, so I, legend is an understatement. There you like, go. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good way to put it. So, um, Bill, why don't we, first of all, why don't we talk, get straight into, I know you've, uh, you've just released a book, uh, and we've, we've, uh, been able to read some of it and, uh, just tell us a little bit about why you chose now to, uh, to come out with this, you know, sort of, uh, uh, memoir and, and what prompted all that and how it's going. Okay. Well, uh, I, I, I love to tell stories and, uh, people have suggested for years, why don't you write a book? Why don't you write a book? And I thought, yeah, but it seemed kind of self-serving. It was a little too much of, uh, I did this, then I did that, then I did this kind of thing. But uh, several years ago, a producer of a Latin artist uh, that I was mixing took me to dinner afterwards and said something that kind of tricked me, um, piqued me, I should say. He said that the record business, as we know, it was born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s and peaked in the 70s going into the 80s. It was a very short time, a very iconic time, never to be repeated again. And you were there. Mm. And it was the you were there that hit me because now I realized I could actually throw in a lot of stories that had nothing to do with me. So I got in the car after that dinner and called my wife and said, I think I'm going to write a book. And... uh Unfortunately, in the editing process, not enough of those other stories got in. The editor wouldn't, you know, had to make, we had to make some lot of decisions. Yeah. And, uh, but I'm not unhappy. It, it's just fine. Well, I read through a lot of it. Um, I, I really dove in. I, I got hooked and, uh, Couple things I'm going to hit a lot of things in the book. If that's okay, a couple things I like. Sure. Uh, for, uh, your mom had a Hammond M3. Um, I'm sure most people know what a B3 is. Can you explain to we'll just say us and the listener the difference in an M3 and a B3? Okay. Well, the M3 is the iconic Hammond organ. Uh, I mean the the B3, the B3 is the iconic is. Hammond organ. C3 is the same organ with a church body, a, a fuller body. Um, and the M3 is a kind of a home model. It still has the iconic drawbars, not quite as many, uh, but it's, you know, a slightly shorter keyboard and has a built-in amplifier and speaker, whereas the, the B3 doesn't have that. 
And yeah, that was, that was my mom's organ. And that's actually where I took lessons when I was younger. And, uh, we, we got a, we, I started a band in high school, my senior year of high school. And, uh, you know, to buy, a, I wanted to play organ in the band. And instead of being smart and getting one of the like Vox Continentals, the English portable kind of organs or something like that, I wanted, I, I loved the sound of Hammond. So I convinced my parents to let me cut the bottom off of the organ. <laughs> and, and then uh, the amplifier and speaker went away and I got the output that went into the amplifier. So uh, we could put it in the trunk of my dad's car uh, and uh, haul it around when we did gigs. And I just plug it into a, a guitar amp. Wow. That is crazy. Wow. That's, that's bold of you. That, that's oh, bold of I you. I love that story. That's awesome. <clears throat> um, so you are obviously a world-class um, engineer, mixer, producer. Um, and I, I'm interested in getting your take on the dynamic between the band or artist who you know comes in the studio with a certain vision for their sound, the producer who has a vision for the record, uh, and the engineer who is tasked with capturing all this and sort of bringing it to life. Uh, what's the what's the dynamic like in in a studio session between those sort of three elements? Well, I believe you just described it pretty well. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean that's it. The producer's uh, responsible to the record company for. Uh, delivering a record, uh, facilitating uh, the artist and what they need done, whether whether it's arrangement ideas or an arranger, uh, and he's responsible for finding an engineer in a studio to record in and selecting all of those things. The engineer is the capturer, and the mix engineer takes all the tracks and puts them together, hopefully to a good aesthetic. And uh, the three jobs, they can be three different people or any combination thereof. Gotcha. It's so uh, as a, as a mix engineer, you know, you've looking through your, <clears throat> excuse me, looking through your credits page is just, is like reading a who's who of, uh, of musicians and, and singers and artists. Um, so let's, let's say you're, you're sitting down for a mix session. Uh, you hit play and coming through your speakers is unheard new music from a legendary artist. It's Whitney Houston, it's Steely Dan, it's Miles Davis, you know, one of these legendary people that you've worked with. Is there a certain, like, sacredness to that moment when you hear it? Do you, do you feel the weight of kind of what you are tasked with, or is it just kind of business as usual? Um, you know, I think in the beginning, it would have been a lot more of a weight. Uh, it it kind of, you know, I was... I'm very fortunate that I kind of popped, got successful as it were quite quickly. So in the beginning, uh, I felt that weight, but it, it didn't take long till uh, it was just kind of business as usual. That's not to say that it's, I don't take it seriously. I take every project I do seriously, whether it's a big name artist or a new artist, unknown artist or whatever. So that's always there, but as a as an engineer uh, and a, and as a producer, do you have a preferred way to work? As far as when you're you know tracking with a band, do you want everybody in the same room, kind of getting that band vibe, or do you want everybody in different spots so you can get everything clean? Or does it vary from artist to artist? Well, because uh, I came up in the in what we'll call for now the good old days, <laughs> uh, where everybody was in the room at the same time. You know that of course has changed with technology and uh, the ability for literally anyone and everyone that that's halfway musical to have a professional you know, record capture in their house uh, that, that's changed a lot. So we find now a lot more, a lot fewer records are made with everybody in the room at the same time. 
of course, I love that because I think the synergy of uh, people playing together is wonderful. And in uh, in the glory days in the in Los Angeles, where a lot of those records that I talk about were made, uh, there the, there was a group of studio musicians that were just incredible. And they not only were they great musicians, not only did they read really well, but they were all creative in their own right, all in essence producers in their own right. And so if, when you threw a uh, a group of these guys in the room together, uh, the, it, we did what, what you'd call head charts, where one guy would say, you know, what about this? Another guy would say, what about that? And they were all very respectable to each other. And that was that was my favorite way of working. Uh, that said, I just, um, uh, just right before the pandemic, which I will finish hopefully this year, uh, started producing a girl where with very modern music. And it's my first entree into everything uh, everything in the box, in spite of the fact that uh, over the years I have assembled a, an incredible collection of old vintage tube microphones. The only microphone used in the making of her album was her vocal mic. Everything else was samples and loops and so on. So uh, it's, you know, different strokes and, and, you know, things change over time. You know, we didn't have the ability to do that 40 years ago. Let's talk about... The, the processes and challenges of, of I found this really interesting of um, recording something. So this to me is a step further even than getting everybody in the same room and capturing everything together. But you um, were sort of the pioneer of, of the, the modern era of recording something direct to disc or, or directly onto like a master lacquer LP um, from an engineering yeah. and mixing standpoint. Tell us some of the, the process and the, and the challenges of doing something like that. Okay. Uh, for those that don't know, direct to disc means that you are not recording onto a capture medium such as an analog tape recorder or a computer or something, um, and then mixing it down. You are going to take, you know, the musicians are in the room and you are going to record, mix, and in essence, master yeah. song one to song two to song three and so on. The lathe it's an actual lathe that does the cutting of the lacquer that ultimately makes the metal parts that stamp records of course can't be stopped for different takes at cuts so it has it goes from beginning to end so everybody has to be at the top of their game needless to say and the the one of the things that people find interesting when i explain it is that the idea of mixing as it goes along because when you record, let's say from tape or, or computer, whatever, when you you've, when you mix from it, I should say, the guitar is going to come back with the exact same level dynamics sound every single time you, whether you mix it, you know, you play it 50 times to doing the mix. The vocal is going to have the same notes, the same dynamics, same sound, everything. Of course, with a direct to disc, they're all humans. They're playing. You do, you know, takes are defined as one whole side of an album. And whereas you might have gotten your mix, your feeling for your mix as you're going along on, on the first take, on the next take of all those same songs, uh, nothing is necessarily going to come back identically the same. Right. Singer isn't going to sing the same notes, exactly the same dynamics, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is a challenge for, for mixing on the fly, so to speak. Uh, it's, that happens to be one of my favorite, favorite things. Uh, one of the good parts about being as old as I am growing up in an era where, where mixing was everything. Now I didn't, I didn't start where Al Schmidt did where, who actually recorded on wire by golly, but, um, 
uh, my first studio was only a two track and it had no equipment. It had two condenser, two professional microphones, no equalizer, no tone controls, and only a, a spring reverb, like from a, a guitar amp for echo. And as a result, everyone that came in, it was all recorded live to two track. And so that was good for me, even though I hated it at the time, because <laughs> uh, the equipment was so Mickey Mouse and the artists were just as much. But uh, <laughs> but it, it was one of those things that, you know, that that really helped me, uh, really helped me and uh, showed me a, a, about live mixing, helped me in, in the future. So the the directed discs are my one of my favorite things. And I, I that's how I before we got computers to help us in the studio. Uh, you know that you, you 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 we had six well twenty four track you had twenty four track and even two twenty four tracks together you had forty eight track and uh, I always mixed for a performance. Some engineers would mix in edits, like they would you know get a basic balance and then they would go along and do maybe sixteen bars and uh, record put that down on the two track and then go on from there and do another sixteen bars and wow. cut it together so they could get every single little thing. And I was much more of shoot from the hip and just make it feel good, you know, all at once and kind of thing. So, yeah, that's and it's great. You, you talk about the problems of direct to disc. The the one that broke everything open, which was the first one I produced with a, a girl named Thelma Houston. We were on the second side recording the second side. And again, yeah, all, all songs. and. We were going along song one, song two. We got to the last song, uh, which was Got to Get You Into My Life, the Beatles song. Mm -hmm. And everything had just been perfect. I was even happy with the mix on every song. Uh, I was just, you know, really laughing. I just really happy. Got to that song. She sang the first chorus, the horn, the horn fill that enters into for the second verse. And no vocal. I grabbed the vocal fader and shoved it up and there was no Thelma. And all, all I heard was, I'm sorry. Oh. And with that, I, I, she had locked up and just forgotten the first line of the second verse. And what could, it, what could a producer do but hit the talk back and say, that's okay, sweetie, you sound amazing. We'll get it this time. <laughs> and we did, but uh, that will always be the one for me that got away, the side that got away. Nothing wow. you could do about it. Yeah, wow. yeah. The uh, it's. I'm glad you touched on Thelma Houston. I love uh, this. There's a big section in Chapter Eight where you talk about how you were decide of your book Chapter Eight where you're talking about all the work that you'd done with with Streisand with Barbara Streisand. You done tons of work with her and how um, you know you put her on the on the pedestal and you're like, there's only other one other person that could do what I'm looking for. And that was the Thelma Houston tie in, which I thought was, was yeah. wonderful. I really liked that chapter a lot. Um, so I'll, I'll yeah, the, the, the funny part of the funny part about that was when, when I convinced, uh, when I convinced Doug Sachs, who had the, the record company, which had, uh, directed this company, which had really not been much of a company. It was really to record his partner's music, um, who, uh, Lincoln, my orga, uh, but after I did, I, I engineered uh, the third Lincoln Mayorga album. And, you know, it was just, it, you know, three days you have an album recorded, mixed and mastered. Jeez. And of course, everything is high intensity. <laughs> yeah, I and, that's you know, it's very different. You know, a normal record, a normal record, you spend 10 percent of your time in pre-production and 90 percent of the time in the studio. 
direct to disc 90% of the time in pre-production, 10% of the time in the studio, complete reversal. But I'd had so much fun engineering that one that I, I, I had, I, when I went back to regular recording, I felt like I was in slow motion, just huh. like, wow, really? We're going to do this guitar for another hour and a half, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, that kind of thing. So uh, I, I went to him with the idea and said, you know, I really want to do it. And it took, took him a week, I think, to, to accept the, the idea. It took two months for him to convince his partner. But when he did, as I'd been thinking about it, there were only two people that I had worked with that I knew could step up to the microphone and deliver a real performance uh, every time. And the first one was Barbara Streisand. I had done, uh, I think at that point, mixed, uh, recorded some of and mixed uh, three of her albums. And I called her manager. And it was something like the the old joke, uh, go away, kid, you're bothering me. (laughs) Uh, So that didn't work out too well. Fortunately, I had just (laughs) Uh, done some uh, vocals and mixing on a brand new artist on Motown and found Thelma's voice to be absolutely gorgeous in terms of the sound of the instrument and what she could do with it. And so I went to Motown and uh, worked out a loan out arrangement for her to do the record. That's cool. Yeah, I, I really like that that story. I'm a. I grew up. I was born in. Me and Rob were both born in '81. And there's parts of these interviews where, where we just gush over stuff that we love about <laughs> artists and, in your case, mixing engineers. So there's some projects that a lot of our listeners probably won't be as familiar with that I grew up that I cut my teeth on. The Walls of Glass album by Russ Taff. Uh, the Carmen Standard album. Um, the, and of course the princess bride and the beaches soundtrack. I love the princess bride soundtrack. My mother's one of her favorite movies is beaches. So you kind of helped mix my childhood. Coming up. So, thank, so thank you for that. Um, that was- yeah, that's quite all right. I have to tell you, I've heard that from much older people. than you. <laughs> that's good. I, that's I did an interview recently where the, the guy said, you know, the the uh, the song photograph, which was yeah. the big hit from the biggest hit from Ringo's uh, solo album, first yeah. solo album that I did. First track, the Phil Spector Wall of Sound. I love that right. portion in the book that you expound on that. That's so good. Anyway, go ahead, keep on. Yes, yeah. He said this. This interviewer said, "Yeah, I was five years old. It was the first forty-five I bought." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we, me and Rob were negative then, yeah. so we weren't. We, weren't yeah, quite, we weren't. Weren't quite, quite thought ready. of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And kind of speaking in that same chapter, um, that's that's tied in part in chapter six. You talk about room two, which is like the room in Abbey Road. Um, talk about that and hanging out with Alan Parsons and what it was like to be an observer there for a minute versus the engineer tie-in. That you're one of the few people that have we talked to anybody else that's recorded in Abbey Road. I don't believe room so. two. I don't th- or been a part of that. Um, talk about that experience. Okay. Well, the. Um uh, on the Ringo album from 1973, uh, I've always looked at it like the other members of the of his band uh, <laughs> decided to give him a leg up. They kind of knew that where their careers were going to go, so they decided to give him a leg up, and they all chipped in and, and wrote a song and whatnot. Um, it's it just it materialized quite quickly. We started alone, and then uh, uh, Quite quickly, two more joined in. When John Lennon came, that was enough to scare the daylights out of me. But it was wonderful. And unfortunately, uh, you know, George came in second, then John. Unfortunately, Paul had had a drug bust, and he was not allowed in the United States. But I think there's a very good chance, if that wasn't the case, there might have been a Beatle reunion. 
Wow. Because the bad blood that had been there was, uh, you know, was drying up, I think. But, you know, having the three in a room together, that, by the way, on the, the song that John wrote, uh, I'm the Greatest, was the only time after the Beatle breakup that there were three of them in a room playing wow. together. Wow, dude, that's so that chill. was that that's was really awesome. special. Yeah. That was really special. But we had uh, so we had to go to England to record Paul's song. Paul and Linda had written a song for him, and so we went and uh, there, we uh, Ringo called the their studio, uh, which is the studio that on Three Savile Row where they did the rooftop concert. And there was a new act, a new Apple act in there making a record. And he called and said, you know, I really like to come in and it would be okay, you guys, if I took a week of your time. And of course, what were they going to say? And so we went and we did it. We recorded the song and some strings and flutes and vocals and whatnot. And at the end, there was one thing left to do. Uh, Paul wanted to do a synth solo, a synthesizer solo. And Ringo, being the gentleman that he is, would not ask the band for one more day. Mm. You know, could we just have one more day, guys? He wouldn't do it. So he booked uh, Studio Two at Abbey Road, which is the room where they did, you know, the lion's share of their work. And at that time, they did not allow outside engineers in. So I couldn't engineer. So I came uh but I came to the studio because obviously I really wanted to see that room. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And talk about hollowed ground and uh, went there. And uh, in that room, the control room is upstairs and the studio is downstairs. So uh, I, they, they, they assigned an engineer named Alan Parsons <laughs> to do the, to <laughs> do the overdub. Him. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's when I met Alan for maybe the first y'all time. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> yeah, maybe. And um and so they, uh, an ARP 2600, probably any, none of you would know, this was one of, this was the first cheap synthesizer. You know, Moog had been out and he had these modules and stuff and you, you had to assemble, a, you know, a ton of it. It cost a fortune to do that. But this ARP 2600 got the job done for all of us normal people. <laughs> I, I had one. I'm a keyboard player and I had bought one. So that's what they had. They set it up on the console and Richard Perry, the producer, and Paul started working on on the the synth overdub. I, of course, went down the stairs and walked around with my mouth agape as I, uh, you know, tried to absorb the vibes of what must what it was like back then. And I came back upstairs, and I was sitting in the back of the room when Ringo arrived a little late, and under his arm was something I had asked him for at the beginning of the week which was, Ring, could you possibly get me a, copies of your, your guys' albums, the English pressings? Because all of us that knew, knew that the English pressings were better. First of all, they were made from the original two-track master. Then they made a tape copy, which never sounds quite as good as the master that was sent to Capitol for the American pressings. And uh, the word was that the, they never liked the way Capitol mastered it on top of that, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted a set of those. And so he pops in with this armload of of records and sits down next to me in the chairs in the back of the control room. And he, he's got them on his lap and he just started flipping through them and said, oh, look at this. A day in the life. Yeah, I remember when we, you know, we had all the full grand pianos and how hard that was. He started telling me story after story. That as is he awesome. Album. And 
And one of the moments in my life was after about 15 minutes of this, I, lo- I looked over to say, cool, Ringo. And he had a big tear coming down his cheek. Oh. It was an amazing moment. Oh, man. That's great. That's, that's the geez. story. That's, that's a good one. I just I almost want to just take a minute and let that just sit yeah. and sink in with me. Wow. Man, that's, that's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the, the process of uh, training your ear as an engineer to be able to go, okay, I pretty much know what, you know, this mic on this amp is going to sound like, or as a, you know, as a mix engineer to go, okay, I think this compressor or this EQ is the right thing to go with here for the vibe I'm trying to create. How do you, how do you go about training yourself in that way? Well, first of all, uh, one of the hardest things to, to discuss is critical listening. Mm. I was very fortunate that the man that, uh, that's my, that was my third mentor and, and, uh, and, uh, did a lot for me, Doug Sachs, famous mastering engineer. I, I learned so much from him and including critical listening, really, uh, George, my good friend, George Massenberg does an excellent job of teaching that at McGill and at, uh, he does, uh, at Berkeley school of music, he'll do master classes. But it's very hard to hard to describe. You sort of have to experience it. You know, you have to be shown, so to speak. But it's like it's like anything else. You know, like uh, my one of my my oldest son is a uh, a second level sommelier uh, uh, on his way to third level, and uh, you know, <laughs> you got to drink a lot of wine to right. begin to figure <laughs> out uh, what, what you know. And it's the same thing. It's just lots and you know, once you know what you're doing. And you do need some help, as he did, you know, and that's why the, the higher up they go, I found it interesting because I didn't know anything about it. But uh, even getting ready for the third level, there was a meeting that they they have you go to, and they were all there drinking with masters, four, fourth level sommeliers um, that can, you know, because that's the kind of thing, that's how you learn. It's it's not exactly an apprenticeship, but, you know, but education is everything. So, so sure, um, you know, once I kind of figured out what, you know, what, how to listen, then it's, it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of listening to everything you brought up in the recording process. You got to try a whole bunch of microphones to see what characteristics each of them have. Again, my age uh, is an advantage to me. I think in this regard, uh, I, I still look at it this way that, you know, in, in, uh, you didn't have the kind of equipment we have today, or even in the last 40 years. So back in the 50s into the 60s, you know, the microphone and the placement, the different, the different microphones with the different characteristics and how they were placed was the was how you changed the sound. If you wanted it brighter, you got a brighter microphone, that kind of thing. So that's to me where it starts still to this day. Uh, a lot of a lot of guys that came up like in the late 80s into the 90s and stuff, you know, the they just put the microphone out and come in and start turning the EQ right away. Right. And uh, is, is there anything wrong with that? I don't know. It's just, I just think it's better to, to, to do it the other way. Same thing then, and as you pointed out in mixing, you know, you have to learn what all the different compressors sound like, what they do, uh, all of the ins and outs. It's, you know, it's kind of interesting because compression, especially uh, it was really, it was first invented to keep the, the uh, for the film business to keep from overmodulating the audio onto the film, the audio that went on the film for the movies, 
because it, it didn't have that much headroom. So they came, up with, they came up with these devices that would hold the level. And the funny thing was they, they had these uh, deleterious, so they thought, side effects. Well, they kind of make a pumping sound yeah. or something, you know? And so whereas that's where it started, by the time we started using them in audio for making records, in the in the late fifties and the sixties, doggone if w- that's not why we picked them. Right, you know this one pumps a certain way, and this one you know won't do that. You know it, this one's faster, but it, it doesn't release as right, and you know all that kind of thing. So again, lots and lots of listening. Wow, what's the what's the most difficult record you've been a part of? <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> not to bring uh, up bad memories, but we yeah, can, we I can still edit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, skip the question. Go, I, I mean, okay. I don't know. Go to right. the other, go to the okay. other well, extreme. Let's flip that. Give us, give us an example of one of the most joyful experiences you've had uh, on a record. Oh boy. Now that's tough. Cause now you've done, you've gone the opposite. You've gone for something <laughs> that's extreme. hard to figure out yeah. to something that there's too many. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick tracking Asia. Okay. Steely Dan. Good, okay. Good choice. Oh. And and that was because, you know, I, I'd become a fan from their early records and I have uh, friends that played on them. Uh, Michael Omardian, who is the yep. great keyboard player and producer, he and I started together in the very beginning, writing songs together and so on. He had played on their earlier records. Jeff Picaro, who had become my already become my favorite drummer, had played on their early records. And they had told me about the maniacal ways that they went, you know, that they put the musicians through in, in trying to find the perfect perfect (laughs) so i was a little concerned when the producer called me and said would you like to record the next album uh but i but i said yeah i do i really do i would like to and he said okay well it's it's uh you know you pick the studio which i was really glad for and then he also said it's going to be a revolving door of drummers you're going to be having to get a new (laughs) drum sound every couple of days i said okay that sounds fine but I have to tell you that uh, unlike the maniacal ways previously and from what went on afterwards on Gaucho, where they went deeper than they'd ever gone into <laughs> of what I will call maniacal ways, uh, the those sessions were a complete joy. They were all high-level studio musicians. It was a no-drug zone. The sessions were like, like almost like union sessions. I mean, we mm. started at two. We never went into the night, late into the night. And it, it just, in every, in every case, they would come in with a piano bass demo, and they, which always sounded wonderful. In fact, on a couple of occasions, one of the musicians said to him, why don't you just overdub the drums on this? And then the guitar, the, you know, it sounds great. And Donald would say, no, no, we'll get it. We'll get it. And so that was it. But we went on, like I said, it was just, they were just as great as sessions as you could ever ask for. And the reason that I picked that to answer your question with was, I don't know that there was ever another session. Uh, the ones with the, sure, with the Beatles were, were kind of like this, but th- that music wasn't, you know, the Beatle music wasn't, how do I say it, a whole new kind of thing. Mm. Asia, for me, was a whole new thing. I mean, I remember popping a cassette your audience probably doesn't know. Anyway, <laughs> popping a cassette into my car on the way home and and going, you know, what is this? It's kind of jazzy. It's kind of bluesy sometimes. 
you know, it rocks a little bit sometimes. I don't know what it is, but I know one thing, it's incredible. Yeah. And it was just like every day, uh, you know, there, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a day that I didn't on the way home just marvel at, at the music of what we had recorded that day. That's great. I have to ask, uh, because it just, you're talking about rotating, uh, rotating door of drummers made me think instantly of Bernard Purdy. Um, and, uh, I just wonder if he's such a character. I just wonder if you've had, uh, any, uh, interesting stories with Bernard Purdy. No, 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 I can't say anything interesting. Just, okay. you know, phenomenal playing and yeah. especially a shuffle. Okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> shuffle. Party is, shuffle. Yeah, oh, yeah. About so he's, he's just, he's quite a guy. He's, he's, uh, you know, yeah. seems to be a big, a big character. So I was just curious. Um, there's a few of those in the business, aren't there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, you talk, uh, in, in your, uh, in your book, you say that you're not a good salesman, but if you're passionate about something, you become exuberant about it. I've enjoyed hearing you talk about things that you, yeah. you definitely, uh, you undersell yourself as a salesman because it's <laughs> been great hearing you tell the story. So thanks so much for the time yeah. today. Bit with us. Okay. Bill. Let me hit you with one well, more and then, uh, and then we've got one question got one that we question ask everybody, we ask but let me ask you about Chicago 16 real quick. Uh, a polarizing album for many, uh, but one that we personally really love, uh, and lots of people have lots of opinions on it. When you first heard this sort of new direction with the David Foster production, et cetera, uh, what were your initial thoughts on Chicago 16? Okay, so what happened, here's what happened on that front. Uh, I, I built my studio and started building in 1980, and middle of 81, it was almost done. And so I called Jeff Picaro and said, you know, when you get a chance, will you bring the guys in and just let me record you? I just want to see, you know, shake down the room and see what I've got here. Uh, we, we built everything in the studio, including the recording console. It wasn't finished wow. yet. So I had, I had rented a, a small, really good sounding console so that I could do this exact thing while we were finishing the console, uh, our own. And uh, so the guys came in and we, we uh, set up mics and we did some recording and uh, everybody was blown away. We had a bottle of champagne. We christened the place and it was wonderful. Two days later, David Foster calls and says, Bill, I've got my big break. I'm going to produce Chicago. And I said, that's great, David. And he said, I want to do it in your studio. And I said, well, David, it's not done. And he said, what do you mean not done? I, I talked to Lukather. He said it was great. I said, well, yeah, I mean, it's sounding okay, but the console's only got 16 inputs and and, you know, I, 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 the place isn't finished. You know, there's no kitchen. The, 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 the walls aren't all finished and whatnot. And he said, I don't care about that. Let me do it. Let me, you know, so I said, well, let me think about it. So I started talking to my friends and people that were surrounding me with it. And they said, you know, what, you know, the trouble is, Bill, if you do it, if you let him do that, you'll never finish the studio. And I said, oh, I'm not worried about that. And suffice it to say, uh, the control room was never finished, which turned out to be a great thing because because the walls the walls were I mean the sound of the control room was finished, but the finish work wasn't done. And so about two three years in, uh, somebody uh, there was a session, and two of the top guys wrote. Uh, I had I threw a coat of paint because everyone was tired of looking at the rough hewn wood and so uh -huh. on. Threw a coat of paint on the whole thing and. Uh, uh, one of the musicians wrote by the left speaker, it's about time you painted this. And the other <laughs> one wrote, are you sure about white? And that, that sat there for a couple of years. 
And then there was another little one and another little one. And, you know, 30 years later, it was the most gorgeous piece of pop art with oh. some of the lots of the best musicians and some of the artists in the world uh, giving their signatures. But when, so they started Chicago 16 in my studio and, and they went until I had to, uh, I did have a booking uh, off in the distance that seemed off in the distance, but it came. And so they had to go and finish it elsewhere. So I I didn't get a I didn't really hear a whole lot of it when it was going down. I didn't let alone the agita that went on <laughs> from the group because as you probably know David, you know, brought in some other musicians to uh starting with drums and going on to guitar that uh in addition to the whole, you know, he really popped them up. I right. mean, as in pop music, he yeah. really popped them up a lot. Um and so obviously Anyone that's seen the Chicago documentary knows that they weren't very happy about that. <laughs> and yet it's sort of, you know, I, I understand that to a degree, but in all honesty, do we really, you know, they had been cold for some time. Do we, we really think if they hadn't been reinvented that you'd, they'd still be touring today, which they are, let's be honest. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a little odd to me to, to bite the hand that really did feed you, even if it, it was hurtful at the time. And uh, and that's the stuff so that I people sing at do. the shows. Like yeah. they sing, hard to say, I'm sorry, get away. You know, that's the stuff that that the crowd really sings and enjoys. So without that, uh, you're, you're correct. So, it would have fizzled. So uh, I had nothing to do with that record other than record them recording part of it in my studio, except that when he was done, uh, David asked me to mix the first single, which was hard to say, I'm sorry, which I did. And then... Uh, and then after that became a hit, I remixed for the single, the second uh, single, which I can't be, remember uh, what it was now. Was that Love Me Tomorrow? Look Away yeah. or Love Me Tomorrow? No, Love Me Tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's uh, honestly, that's hard to say I'm sorry uh, into, into Getaway. Into Getaway. <laughs> it's maybe, I know, blasphemy to some people, might be my favorite Chicago track of all time. So <laughs> thank you for that. Um, all right. We got one more question oh, that we yeah, ask yeah, everybody. That we ask everybody go. before we let you go, Bill. You're on tour. Um, you go into a <laughs> gas station. What is your gas station snack food of choice? And while you're thinking of it, I'll tell you mine. I get a Three Musketeers bar. When I was growing up, my mom said you could get any candy bar you want, and that's the most ounces for the money. So I would get a Three Musketeers bar. <laughs> what is your uh, gas station snack food of choice? Wow. There's another tough question. Let me tell you. Um, where do I begin? Um, if, if, you know, if you're talking candy bar, there's, there's just too many. I love, I love Heath bars a lot. Okay. I love... Uh, yeah, Three Musketeers. Um, uh, oh, what's uh, the peanut and nougat? That payday. Uh, yeah, payday. Oh, yeah. That's probably what I would grab. Okay, that's oh, probably what I would grab. Payday. That's a good solid snack right there. That's excellent. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you so much. Thank yeah. you for what you've done in our lives in the world of music. Seriously, I mean, I, for real. Like you've you've crafted our our musical upbringing yeah so and to even still to this day still doing stuff so thank you so much good luck on the book speaking of the book yeah yes it's chairman at the board yes yes uh and people uh you know if they have more questions or or wanting to order the book is in bookstores and on amazon uh if you go to billschnee.com bill s-c-h-n-e-e.com there's you can uh there's a contact page there and there's an order form for amazon and uh also a page of of what's new because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still at it, going yeah. at it really hard. And in fact, I just moved to Nashville area about almost three years ago now. 
And I've done two of the best albums since I got here that I've done in the last 10 years. I'm oh. really, they, of course, nothing is out because of COVID, but one of them is coming out in a month, a month and a half. Okay. Uh, and so on. So. So by the time this airs, that probably should, should have come out, out already. Yeah. So do you want us to tell us a little bit about it? Um, it's, yeah, it's a, an album by an artist named Mandy Barnett. And Mandy is the, the only country artist I ever produced. I only made, produced one country record and it was Mandy. It was 25 years ago. She was a kid. And so she's on a new record company and the producer ha- did a brilliant thing. He brought to her the, uh, uh, in satin lady in satin record, Billy Holiday's second to her last record and arguably her best. And it's all the torch songs from that album. And, uh, th- that was a special, uh, treat for Mandy because about 15 years ago, one of the musicians in town handed her that Billy Holiday record and said, you know, Mandy, someday you should do a record like this. You would kill it. Huh. So she lit up, she lit up like a tree when he said that. And then the, the producer got, uh, Sammy Nestico, a name you probably don't know, but this, this guy, he's a, he was, he just passed away last year. Uh, he, at 96. And so he, he, he's just a phenomenal old school arranger. And so with, with that, we have, we have these incredible songs with the uh, incredible arrangements with, in the book, I refer to Mandy as one of the best singers I've ever put a microphone in front of. And I truly mean it. And I recorded it live with a 60 piece orchestra here oh. at Ocean Way recording. Yeah. And it's astounding album. Oh, that's fantastic. I look forward to hearing it. That'll be great. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. I always love getting to talk to people in your in your echelon is really rare. And we really I mean, it's a it's a special thing for us. And I hope that comes through, uh, you know, in in the in the questions that we ask and, and the love that we have for what you've done. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, we wish you all the best. That's great. Thank you, guys. You've been great. Thanks, Bill. We'll Thanks, catch up Bill. soon. Yeah. Have a great day. Yep. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. This is the Great Song Podcast. And that was the legend, Bill Schnee, taking a few minutes with us here on the Great Song Podcast, our behind-the-board guy in our tour of the music industry. Uh, Thanks so much, Bill, for joining us. We'll be back next week with another stop in our tour of the music industry. But before that, stop what you're doing, (laughs) whatever you're doing, right this moment. I don't care if you're about to skydive, you're about to jump out of a plane, don't pull that cord yet. Uh, Make them take another lap. That's right. Get your cord in one hand and your phone in the other and go. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Send us a selfie from the air. <laughs> That's right. Tag us in it. Uh, follow us at Great Song Pod. Join the Facebook group, Great Songs, and the great people who love them greatly. And if you want to go the extra mile and be a producer of the show, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Great Song Pod. That's P A T R E O N dot com. Do I need to yell? Can you hear us in the air as you're Patreon.com. Go to Patreon.com slash Great Song Pod. And uh, when you support the show that way and become a producer, not only will you get official producer's credits on each episode, but we'll be able to say thank you by giving you early episodes, extended shows, Patreon exclusive episodes, uh, and more. So every every possible way we can find to say thank you, we will do when you support the show at Patreon.com slash Great Song Pod. We'll be back next week with another tour of the music industry. Until then, I'm Rob. I'm JP. Go listen to some music. <laughs> Go listen to some music. Music.